Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is actor, writer, and producer Jennifer Dale, whose roles in the feature films Suzanne, Ticket to Heaven, and Of Unknown Origin launched a career that spanned every medium and genre. She's worked with Adam McGoyan on The Adjuster, John Woo on the English-language versions of Once a Thief, to Clement Virgo on Love Come Down, to April Mullen on Gravy Train. If you grew up in the 90s, you knew Jennifer as the voice of Mystique in the animated X-Men series and the video game X-Men Mutant Academy. And recently you might have caught her in Akash Sherman's Clara, Corey Stanton's Robbery, or Andrew DeAngelis' sadly short-lived comedy What Would Sal Do? She stars in the new film Into Invisible Light, which she co-wrote with director Sheila Carter, and it opens theatrically this Friday, February 1st, in Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver. Jennifer picked I Am Love, Luca Guadagnino's 2009 drama of love and betrayal among the aristocracy, with Tilda Swinton following her Oscar win for Michael Clayton as Emma, the Russian-born wife of a wealthy Italian clan who risks destabilizing her comfortable world and everything in it when she's drawn to a friend of her son's. Embraced as much for his artful reference points and sumptuously realized production design as for Swinton's devastating performance, it launched Guadagnino on the career path that would lead to A Bigger Splash, Call Me By Your Name, and, well, Suspiria. I'll forgive that one. This is someone else's movie. First of all, it's, it, it was very much in my mind as an inspiration for the film that I have just completed with Sheila Carter into Invisible Light, because when she and I started to talk about what we wanted to do... We spent a great deal of time talking about the the actresses, the performances, the kinds of women's protagonist roles that, that inspired us, that resonated with us. And Tilda Swinton in this movie was definitely at the top of the list. Okay. But I, I remember very clearly when I first saw even just the trailer for this film. I got so excited. I thought, oh my God, somebody has made a movie just for me. I mean, I was so, so excited by it because the idea of an actress, uh, an, you know, an English-speaking actress acting in Italian... And Russian. And Russian, playing a Russian character whose second language is Italian. Well, I, I don't know if you know, but I am actually half Italian. I was um, have an Italian background. My okay. real last name is Cirluini. And I've studied the language for about 12 years now, so it's very important to me. Um, and to, to sort of watch somebody doing that in a film was really a, a, quite a feat and, and very impressive. And also, um, the just the beauty of it. There's so many things about this movie that I love. I don't even know where to begin. Um, you know, I've listened to a lot of, of interviews in the last few days, also with the director, Luca Guadagnino, uh, and with Tilda Swinton. And I think one of the things that I'm, I'm so inspired by is their relationship, the process, uh, the relationship that they have as collaborators. You know, that they they did a short film together. For the first thing that they did together was mm. a short film called The Love Factory, which I couldn't find. You can't find it anywhere. Yeah, it must be done out. Yeah, but it, it's, it's a film that's apparently like just a close-up of her talking into the camera about love. And while they were editing that, they were talking about what they wanted to do next and extrapolating the idea. And... Uh, they took a long time well, to come up with it, yeah. right? I mean, this was an, an eleven-year gestation process. An eleven-year gestation, two? and and uh, I mean, he does not consider her to be his muse per se, because a muse he would think of as a as a kind of a passive role, right? Mm. And Tilda is clearly very much a collaborator and a worker, and you know, in at the ground level. And helping him to create the very story that they that they wanted to create, mm-hmm. he said that he he wanted to make something for a long time about the decadence of the bourgeoisie and, but also and and what a what a masquerade it is, but also how uh, they have to be prepared for a revolution from within that. Yes, well, he cited the leopard, Visconti's the leopard, a yes. number of times as a. As a 
a visual inspiration at least. Yes. And there is that sense of the um, the sort of reckoning that that uh, his cinema is having with the the cinema of the of the Italian uh, new wave auteurs from the sixties as well. That right. there, this is a response to that as much as the bourgeoisie response to its own infiltration. It's it's. Yes, it's a snake eating its tail on three or four different yes. levels. Yes, I mean he takes references from from the leopard. He he his character uh, uh, Tancredi Recchi mm. is is also the name Tancredi of the character that Alain Delon plays in the leopard, Il Leopardo, and uh, and and also he talked about you know the that there there is great beauty and dignity in the maintaining of the traditions of that kind of a family but that just that it is this this tragedy of denial in mm-hmm. a way because it's a movie about all these people trying to deny their feelings for various different reasons which is so interesting yeah the emotional impact of it is something that i the first time i saw it i i think i felt as though i was watching an italian greenaway Somebody who mm. was doing the thing that Peter Greenaway does in his movies in the 90s and, and, and leading up to um, maybe the 80s and 90s, uh, Zed and Two Knots, Cook the Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, were just these elaborate depictions of decadence that are also rotting from within, uh, and they're metaphorically rotting, but they're also literally rotting, all of that stuff. Uh, with, with, with I Am Love, there's a sense that it's about to start rotting, but it hasn't yet, and that there's right. still a possibility of everything maybe being if not salvaged then at least escaped right and so you're watching this family fall apart in almost real time uh because of the conflicts that you mentioned because of the things that people can't allow themselves to do or or have and because there is this illusion that's set up from the very beginning right of of a cohesive thing right that that's all so interlocking and dependent on each other right and yet it, it, it is an, an, an illusion, right? But it's it's beautifully uh, presented. So we're not quite sure that that's what we're looking at from yeah. the outset, right? I mean, I, the opening of the film with the the incredible, you know, music of John Adams, which I, I didn't realize until yesterday. I, I heard uh, Guadagnino talking about the fact that the the music was not actually written for the film Mm -hmm. that it was already pre-existing music which i find so interesting and it it almost has a a kind of stravinsky feel to it that big those big operatic uh you know it and there's that music is like it's it's a you can feel that it's music that's saying there's a change coming something's on the move here right can wait for it watch for it yeah exactly and 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 against the the scape of Milan in the dead of winter, with you know the frozen architecture and everything you know frigid and and covered in layers of ice and the streets empty and nobody about. It's like everybody's in hiding somehow. Mm-hmm. And and then we go and 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 then those credits. Yeah, very very uh, elaborate in yes. their presentation and over. Over enunciating almost yes. in text somehow. Yeah, they're like they're like old Visconti and uh, and Antonioni credits, or or even old Hollywood. Yeah, Cirque was a reference point right? too. I yes, thought. very much that. And and then we then we come to the house, the house which you know is is we're we're on the outside of it and we're just looking in through the windows, right? Mm-hmm. And where this this other world, and. And the house itself, which is not very homey looking. I mean, it's it's magnificent, but it's it's kind of like an industrial fortress in yeah, a way, right? It's still very gray, and there's a lot of space that's just there to, yeah. to loom in. Right, exactly. And we see it, we experience it through people bustling around and preparing bustling around. Things. The first people we see are the servants and Emma working with the servants. She's polishing a little... A little bowl that's gold on the inside, mm-hmm. you know, and she she looks like she could well be uh, one of the maids herself, and and then the, the one of the other really interesting elements that he uses in this film is um, food and what food means, how oh, yes. food is 
is a gift. The making of food is always a gift, right from the first scene that we see uh, her son, Eduardo Ido, coming home uh, for this uh, festa that's in preparation for the, the, the patrone, for the nono. Mm-hmm. Um, and Emma has made for her eldest son his favorite soup, the fish, the famous right. fish soup, the Russian fish soup. And you, we see that it's such a um, a delight for him because it's, it's like specially made for him, her gift to him, right? And and then we start to establish the family as everybody starts to arrive for this compleanno, the birthday party, right? And we start to be introduced to the various characters and the relationships, and it's all very intriguing and interesting these relationships yeah you can tease it out uh, on second viewing it was much more obvious uh, but the actors have clearly thought very long and very hard about the relationships to each other in character and, and you can yeah. tell who's comfortable with with which relative and which yes. people might have had a fight more recently and, and yes. it's it's that sort of slow steeping in a family dynamic that most movies do with dialogue now and do it very clumsily, you know, like Eddie, I'm your brother, I've known you forever, yeah, and all yeah. that stuff. And this just lets it all manifest. Yes. And um, I'm always surprised that the film is as short as it is. I always remember it as being longer. I think that's the leopard in my head. It's, oh, you know, maybe. it's always three yeah. hours long, but it's only, it's just two hours. Yes, yes. And even and though we're ten minutes in at this point, we're still zipping along. Yes. And while everyone is arriving... There's that marvelous moment where, where Tilda is putting on her makeup at her toilette table, and and Tancredi comes in and he says, uh, "Sono arrivati." They've arrived, mm-hmm. and and she gets up and he goes to the safe and he takes out the bracelet and the ring that he puts on her, and as he's putting them on her, it's like he's handcuffing her, yeah. right? It's a very strange moment. And she kisses him, and off she's on the run. You know, this is this is a, a really functional, you know, everybody's got their role to play, right? right? But we clear. also see their the transactional nature of their relationship. It's yeah. just summed up so beautifully in that moment of uh, our realizing, because she knows it already, uh, who, has, who has the power, who holds the right. actual power in the relationship. Right. And, uh, I mean, in some sense, even though she has been brought in as a member of this family and is loved in in their way she's still an outsider and yeah. will always be that in it's, a sense yeah it's a it's never the film is never cruel about the way that it sees their relationship to her but we're also never really allowed to forget as you say that there is that gap there yeah. and it's doubly reinforced to me by having it be Swinton who we know is not Italian some part of your brain is always just marveling at Tilda Swinton speaking Italian and Russian, right. but it, it works to separate the character from the others, from the native Italian speakers surrounding her as yes. well. It's it's this excellent casting instinct, yes. which they bo- which both Guaranino and Swinton clearly had, because she had to know she could do this. Yes, absolutely. And, Great faith that he had in her for that. I love that. And but I, I, I wonder, too, though, whether or not... Marissa Marissa Berenson is not a native Italian. Uh, no, she she I, may I've well seen, speak. I've it. seen her speak Italian and French, actually. Now that I think about it. Okay, but I mean, well, and uh, you know, it's always the thing when when they're speaking that that kind of very pure Italian, right? I mean, mm. it's not like say uh, the uh, the dialect that we're now watching in uh, the beautiful my my, my uh, brilliant oh, the friend thing, right yeah. in the, the Neapolitan or or so many other Italian films where you you know even though you're studying the language you can't understand a word they're saying yeah, you can very clearly understand this Italian right? yeah, they're speaking very formally and very elegantly it's it's about bearing it's about education yes. it's about money yes obviously they've they are um, they are at a, a how can I say it? They're elite. They're they are the yes. elite. They're they're the perfected version of themselves. Or yes. at least that's the image they want to present. Yes. So then the first clue that we get that something has changed, something is different, is the fact that that morning 
first son, Ido, in a race, has broken a long-standing Reki family tradition by losing a race to someone. <laughs> and um, nobody, It's not sitting well. <laughs> it's not sitting well. Nobody makes a big fuss about it, but you can clearly see that it's, uh, you know, they're rather disgruntled. And then the other thing that's going on is that the, the daughter, Betta, uh, is in a, a, a secondary room with her boyfriend who's trying to make out with her, take her pants off, and she's, uh, she's trying to be polite about it, but she's really not having any. And, you know, gets him off of her. And, and then she comes in to give her gift to uh, her nono, which he's expecting to be another painting. And it's not. It's a photograph which is the new art that she wants to pursue. Mm -hmm. And so he's also put off a little bit by that. He tries to, to pretend that he's happy about it, but he doesn't like novelty. Yeah, it is wonderful, too, to introduce a family that gives paintings to each other as a matter of course. Yes, absolutely. And have us still like them. Yes. Because that is the most... Yes. ...detached bourgeois thing I can... Yeah. Like, oh, how do you... How do you even try to connect to the real world when, when that is your standard. Yes. There, there's no there's no association. Mean, this might as well be taking place in the 1940s, you know, or in the 1930s. It's funny, I got a, a real Garden of the Fins and Contini's vibe from it at, yeah. at certain points about people who are living a life that they don't know is about to end. Yes. Whether I mean this this won't happen because of their ethnicity or their or their wealth. It's just their time is ending. Yes. And it's moving the world is moving past what yes. they do. Yes. And of course someone loses a race because there are better people out there. They're, right. they're just it's inevitable. Right. But they don't know that and they're going to great, great lengths to deny it. Yes. There's another little detail at that um, dinner as everyone's sitting down that I thought was very interesting and telling. When the the servants are pouring their wine around to the glasses, mm -hmm. the girl who's been brought to the family for the first time as Ido's girlfriend, mm -hmm. uh, she, it's just a moment. You'd almost miss it if you weren't p paying attention. But when the, they go to pour at her, her glass, she just puts up her hand to say no. And it's just an interesting detail, right? Yeah. She's the girl who wants to be accepted into the family, so she's going to do everything right. She's not going to have any wine with this yeah. meal, right? I loved all those little details. But and it's you, a, it's... you know what else I love? The audaciousness of the title. Yes. Right? I mean... I am love. Like, who does that? Who makes a movie and calls it that? Well, Luca Guadagnino, clearly. Sure. But, I mean, to, to do that, it's a, you know, without getting into a, a whole conversation about what love is, but, you know, it, it's really audacious, mm. that. I well, the whole film is declarative in that way. I mean, yes. even the lifts from Cirque and Visconti and Antonio, the, the, I mean, he's outright stealing in tribute. It's not, yeah. and it's not perceived as an act of theft no it's the what was this his second feature and he just steps right up and says no i'm we, i'm at this level i'm functioning yeah. here and I'm, I'm capable of doing this and it is it's uh it's a back foot moment certainly for people who aren't ready to be um who aren't ready to give him the benefit of the doubt i would say i i certainly had a few minutes with it uh and while i was watching it i'm just trying to figure out exactly how um how much rope i should give this guy because it's a pretty glaring statement and yeah. and his cinema is lush and detail oriented in a way that i sometimes find annoying uh, uh certainly the the expert recreation of 1976 berlin in suspiria is something that i don't think serves the film in the slightest but i'm i'm forced to watch every piece of stone be laid and every like all of these details are put in front of you while you watch the film and you really don't have a choice uh, but to be trapped in it. In, in I Am Love, it absolutely works because he's building a world that um, that maybe never existed as opposed to this weird photorealistic obsession he has with moving Argento's film away from this impressionistic, bizarre day-glow mise-en-scene into something more realistic. Here, he's creating a world that is as heightened as Cirque's or as Visconti's because that's the level, that's the world these people think they live in and so the film reflects it. And then we get to watch it come apart from the inside. And that's part of the statement of the film, which, which works very, very effectively. In this case, not so much in, in Suspiria. So I haven't seen Suspiria, but, yeah, let yeah. Me, okay, <laughs> but let me ask you. So, I mean, I'm 
so impressed by Guadagnino's directing ability with actors, too. And obviously he is working with some of the greatest actors living, but but he clearly must have a rapport with them that, that draws out of them these performances. I mean, it's not only Tilda in this movie or in uh, A Bigger Splash. Sure. It's Ray Fiennes in A Bigger Splash, who was extraordinary. And Timothy Chalamet in uh, Call Me By Your Name. You know, I, I've actually said this before to several people. I, I think that Timothy Chalamet in that movie does something that will remain with me forever as one of the greatest acting moments of all time. Do you remember? Which moment? Do you yeah. remember? It's a scene. It's about three quarters of the way through the film. The relationship is already quite established. I think they have already uh, consummated their relationship. And they are meeting on their bikes in the piazza, I think. And it, they, they come together and he comes up to him like he's going to give him a hug or a kiss or something and he just he does this little leap of 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 goofy kind of joy and ecstasy that is it, it just takes your breath away I, I will never forget that. It was so beautiful. I do remember that. That's the last thing you expect in that moment. That yes. little cultish leap. Yeah. Yes. It was wonderful. Yeah. No, I think um I think as a filmmaker, he can get people to... Certainly he can get people to trust him because the stuff that he gets Swinton and, and Dakota Johnson to do in Suspiria is very complicated and painful and difficult, and they wouldn't have done it if they didn't trust him and believe that it would work. Uh, but even, yeah, even something that uh, as, as simple uh, and and just as beautiful as trusting the entirety of Call Me By Your Name to come down to that final monologue from a character who's been very still and almost not present for most of the film and just knowing that Michael Stuhlbarg can land that monologue after just sort of being half present for the entire film and in that moment that it will work it's it's that trust game of, of casting and directing and acting and yeah I, I, I'm not yeah, I have a weird hole in my heart for Call Me By Your Name just because I feel that there should be more tension somehow. It's a movie that's very um, very safe in its storytelling, that it just tells you what's going to happen and then it happens, which is a little less interesting, yeah. uh, I think. But that monologue is among the most impressive things in, in any of Guadagnino's films. It's just... it. it completely reframes the film it completely reformats the film it would be like Swinton having a big speech at the end of I Am Love but it's not necessary no, right? no. we don't need it in this case speaking of her speeches though the only time we hear her talking in long yeah, passages we're not ever actually seeing her right she is in she's doing oh. other things I just noticed that because I was yeah. re-watching parts of it this morning and I just when she's speaking at length about her past, where she came from, how she was brought into the family, and she's involved with her lover by this point, mm-hmm. and we see them engaged in other things, but all of that is voiceover. She's never sort of on camera talking at length yeah. to anybody, and she is a, a character with a very uh, you know, profound and well-developed interior life, obviously, but she's not particularly communicative ever with anyone. I was wondering if that was... I mean, I'm sure it's deliberate again to set her apart, but I was wondering if it's because she's never trusted her family with herself. If we're supposed to infer that she's always been... She is as present as she is, and she sees everything and nothing gets past her, but I wonder if she just doesn't communicate that. Possibly because... She is an outsider yeah. and doesn't feel like her... You know, Again, if everything she does is based on being allowed to do something, why would she go any further? There would be right. a part of her that she keeps to herself. Right. And, of course, that's the part that comes out in the affair. That's the part that we see uh, expressed with someone else who sees her differently. Yes, yes. And There's that's all... Someone in... else, this someone else, the chef... Yes. Who who arrives that evening yeah. at the dinner. The fateful meeting. With 
another gift, right? He, uh, o fatto, o portato una torta, right? I brought you yes. a cake. Thank you for saying it so I don't have to struggle with it. <laughs> and, and he's the fellow that has won the race in the morning, which is another interesting touch, right? Mm -hmm. And now he's brought this cake to Ido, and that's when they meet ever so briefly. But then she disappears and goes upstairs to her room, uh, as she does at these events. She tends to withdraw. She removes herself, and stays, exactly. Yeah. you know, in her own private space, uh, sometimes with Ida, her housekeeper, who is also a very fascinating character, because she's, she's the one who seems to hold the whole emotional life of the family. She holds it and she deflects it, right? And, and people, it's not that they... It's not that they really uh, reveal a lot to, to her, but they, they feel safe with her, right? Mm. There's a moment later in the movie where Ido f f breaks down in tears on her shoulder, right? When things are beginning to shake up for him. Yeah. Well, she's always been present for them, right? Yeah. In a way that maybe um, other yeah. parental figures have not. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's not an indictment of anybody. It seems that that's just the way the house runs. Um, you know, all of these parts are moving without the family's involvement. Yes. So they're there, they're present, they're always there. And then, of course, you take them for granted. And then, of course, you realize what they mean. They can, And they can witness things without affecting them. Yes. So maybe she's a safer person to confess to. Yes, yes. Or be, be present in front of. And it's just, again, it's one of those things that's in the film but never really explained or investigated. It's simply part of the, the surface that you're presented yes. with. So then... You know, I lo also love the, you know, the, the change of the seasons, how the whole story moves. We, we, we're suddenly, we're Alcuni Mesi Fa several months later, mm. right? And now it's spring. And Tilda is going to the dry cleaners and where she happens to be given something that was left in a jacket. And it's a, it's a letter CD that uh, her daughter Beta has written to her brother to tell him that she's fallen in love with a girl. Right. And this is a, a, a great, strange thing for Tilda, but not, not, it doesn't seem disturbing. She's just fascinated by it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's the possibility of another life, right? Yes. I mean, that whole, that whole recurring theme of choosing yeah. differently. Yes. Uh, it, her children are doing it. She's wondering whether, perhaps, whether she's capable of it herself. And, and I mean, I suppose we can go all the way into spoiler territory. People, It's a 10-year-old movie, and people will hopefully have seen it by now. But the world does choose for Emma sometimes. Other people's actions allow her to yeah. find a path. Yeah, but that's true. But in this moment where she's presented with this thing that is potentially scandalous, it's potentially... Uh, presumably upsetting or you know movies have taught us that we should be upset when this moment happens because a parent is finding out a secret but it doesn't you're right it doesn't play that way it's no. it's simply a possibility yes and by this time um ido and the chef are friends and they have a plan to open a restaurant together and there's another party that's being planned for uh, an announcement of uh, an engagement between ido and his girlfriend and of course, uh, and Antonio is the chef. I think that's his name. I isn't so, it? Yes, yeah. Antonio. Um, he's going to do the food for the party, and uh, when uh, Emma comes home and he's in preparation for the food with all these beautiful little things laid out on the table, she's so enamored of just seeing them. And then they meet again as he's using this little blowtorch to mm -hmm. to put uh, you know on some. Thing that he's creating, and then Ido is there and introduces them again, and and they get Emma to use the blowtorch, and you see them connecting over their appreciation of food, mm -hmm. right? And the work involved, and the I work think we've seen involved. her putting that work in as well, so yes. that's part of it too. Yes, and I I I find myself wondering if. Um, Guadagnino sees himself as Antonio, you know, like the craft, the specific fussiness of the craftsman, because so many of his films feel very, very, you know, handmade in a way that that cinema rarely does, where you're just lingering on details because we are supposed to notice them and appreciate them. It was, uh -huh. it was again the thing that pulled at me watching Suspiria. Uh, is look how meticulous this is, and there are moments of it in in. Call Me By Your Name, but it feels more organic to the story because uh -huh. that's about observing and noticing and, and appreciating. 
And here it's the the effort that bonds them. Yes, absolutely. And starts them down that road. And soon after, there is this the, the, that wonderful scene <laughs> where Emma goes with uh, Allegra, the, the, her mother-in-law, who's by now a widow, and the uh, daughter-in-law-to-be uh, for lunch mm-hmm. at the restaurant where Antonio works. And he gives them each a different dish, and he gives her this plate of crustaceans something <laughs> someone said it's like she's having oral sex with a plate of crustaceans yeah, yeah. they call it sort of gastro prawn <laughs> <I'll allow it. laughs> and it's but it's part. but it's it's quite gorgeously shot i mean she's in that red dress and then of course well to speak of her dress i mean her wardrobe throughout the entire film is just so evocative and and making a statement in every scene very clearly about her evolution right yeah and swinton is such a a physically present actor too that you really just nice all you need to do is put on a nice hat and she'll stand out but this is yeah you know two or three levels but she's above. but she's also a a, a tremendous fashion icon mm-hmm. and fashionista and so you know she has the greatest designers you know Rafe Simons from for Jill Sander creating a whole line for her in this, right? Yeah. Anyway, the scene in the restaurant, she's eating these prawns and she's having like a total revelatory experience, right? And uh, and then he comes out and she we see that she can barely even make eye contact with him because she's so impressed. It's almost like she's just had this little mini orgasm eating his food. <laughs> Can't look him in the eye. And then she then she compliments him after went outside and uh, learns that he goes up to San Remo, where the farm is, uh, on Thursdays to uh, take care of the planting up there and everything. And sometime later, she ends up going to visit with her children, having to go through San Remo to get to Nice, and happens to see him. Right. Mm-hmm. These uh, things just happen. They, you know, they well, it no orchestration matter. involved. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yes, but exactly. It's and then and then another homage that very Hitchcockian sort of uh, chase scene, mm-hmm. right? Where where she, you know who's the predator, who's being followed, who's being watched, right? Mm-hmm. And, but in a playful sort of yes. pursuit. There's no there's dramatic tension, but it's not suspenseful. It's actually just pleasurable yes to watch this which is i think the thing that at this point we're co-conspirators absolutely the film is inviting us to root it's for this it's like a, f- a foreplay and then and then she agrees to go with him on the drive up to the to the farm in the hills of san remo beautiful drive into the heat you can feel the heat right and they get up there and she's in that orange dress and takes off her sweater and goes to sit while he goes to freshen up and then he comes back and you don't even see it, right? It's all blurred and you just see her from the back and him kind of reaching in for this kiss and it's all blurred and it's like everything has changed. Mm-hmm. It's a, a texture to it. It's a, a sensual cinema yeah. uh, that defines all of his films, really. I mean, even, even Suspiria, even uh, A Bigger Splash are films about place and time and people and and you know a bigger splash you can sort of smell the the salt water and the air and and the uh Suspiria tries very hard to be gritty and and you can sort of sense the tension and despair of, of berlin shaking itself apart while all this stuff is going on and call me by your name is idyllic and this film is similarly in awe of everything it's seeing while waiting for the chance to dive into it right this is the culmination this is the moment where the movie actually lets people feel something yes and up until that point it's been discouraging it yes and it, i think this just as we've been sort of brought along to to emma's desires we're also now in a position to root for them and enjoy the rest of it with her yes. rather than worry that she's going to make the wrong decision if this is the wrong decision it's still Looks like she's enjoying herself. She looks so much like she's enjoying herself when she comes back from that encounter and races into her bathroom Mm. and sits on the toilet and there's the close-up of her. She's just like, 
she's like a little kid who's just opened her Christmas present. She's just so thrilled. And it reminded me of another moment in a movie like that, mm. but that is played very, very differently. And that also for me remains as one of the great acting moments of all time is Diane Lane in Unfaithful because she comes home from her encounter with a lover for the first time and is riding on the train and it's all played in close up on her and the gamut of yeah. emotions that she, she goes through. At one point, doesn't she? she uh, yeah, it's, it's very Eleonora Duse that, the blush. <laughs> I love it. But yes, she. She blushes, she cries, she laughs, she's thrilled, but, you know, she's also realized the enormity of the the, the horrible thing that she's done and what mm-hmm. it's going to cause. Whereas Tilda, in this film, there's no yeah. presaging of that. No it's regret. all no regret. No guilt. No regret. And from this point, you know, things are just moving forward, even though... Uh, she's still within the family, you can see her knowing that it's things are going to change. Things are going to change. You see her in a beautiful scene talking with her husband in their, you know, quiet, measured tones, her wearing the purity of all white still, mm-hmm. ha ha, and, <laughs> right? Just but, playing the role, yeah. Yeah, but then, but then you see her walking through her house and she's touching things and you realize she's saying goodbye to everything i recognized that so clearly mm-hmm. I, I mean i literally recognized that moment having lived through that kind of experience where you're walking through the house you're going to leave and saying i'm saying leaving all of this behind yeah it's again you know it's not where i thought this movie was going to go when i first saw it it's not i didn't expect the the depth of feeling I suppose because yeah. it presents itself as such a grand production that yeah. you're going to be staring at all the, the lavish you know it's a textiles movie you're looking at the, the wall hangings and then right. suddenly you realize you're invested in the emotions of the people inside yes and that the and as we talked about earlier that the destruction of this family isn't coming from a revolution it's just moving on yeah things but are it changed. is a, it is a revolution in a way oh, of, of, a, course, of yeah, a very a personal, personal revolution from the deepest part of somebody mm-hmm. right and i guess you need to i mean it's responsible in a strange way to show the level of comfort that she has to make us understand why she'd be willing to leave it yes for that that depth of feeling that yes. she has yes and then we you know we have the sections that where the movie breathes into that love affair mm-hmm. um although all of those sex scenes you feel kind of like I'm not supposed to be here. They're so private. Yeah. You know, the way he shoots it over the shoulder of Antonio and just his back while he's talking intimately to her. And, yeah. and you just feel like, oh, this is just their thing and I shouldn't be watching. I was trying to figure out the last time I watched it if we're supposed to be tense about that, if it's supposed to feel like surveillance and maybe they'll be exposed or found out oh. and we're supposed to have some sort of tension but I don't know that that's it I think it's just how he's depicting intimacy we shouldn't be there because I don't think she has that sense even you know because then there's much later leading towards the climax of the film there's going to be there's another big dinner in her Mm -hmm. home when the Shah from London is coming and the company is being sold or or, you know merging or something big change to the family and the company and she's uh, there, you know, greeting those guests and at part of that dinner, and then she just suddenly gets up like a sleepwalker or somebody hypnotized, and again, that camera follows her, that long tracking shot down the stairs and into the kitchen where Antonio is cooking, and she just goes and stands there, and he just comes to her, and they kiss, and it's kind of like anybody could see them, right? I mean, mm-hmm. she's not even trying to hide it at this point. No, she wants it to be over. She she's, wants it to be she's over. She's ready to move on. And it will be, very quickly. as so. But not the way Not the way she, she would have wanted. Yeah. So, so uh, Ido has been up to the farm since uh, looking for Antonio at one point, and has seen this long blonde hair on the cobblestone uh, because Antonio has cut all of her Emma's hair off and uh, and um, 
so he has something going on in the back of his mind, and then this fish soup is served. Mm-hmm. I just want to go back. There's, there's also there's a scene in that space where you know we know she knows it's going to be over soon, but she's in bed with her husband, and they're watching. She's watching uh, Philadelphia. Tom Hanks in that scene where he's listening to the Maria Callas. Aria, mm-hmm. which is from Adrian, uh, what is uh, Adrian Le Chenier? I think it's the mm-hmm. opera and the song. The aria is called La Mamma e Morte, mm-hmm. and she's there, right? Mom, the mother is dead, and she's there in bed with her husband, and just saying, "I'm tired," and rolling over, right? But then we go to that dinner, and the fish soup which Emma has told Antonio about while they were making love in mm-hmm. his cottage, uh, this dish that is Ido's favorite, Antonio has made for this dinner. And the servants bring it all out and put it on the table, and Ido understands instantly what's going on and yeah. gets up from the table, and Emma follows him out to the pool where they argue, and he says, uh, 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 that's it for me, I don't ever want to have anything to do with you again, and he gets up, and she grabs his arm, and he trips and cracks his head on the cement of the pool and falls in the pool, and everything is utter devastation from there on. Mm-hmm. It's the, yeah, it's the end of everything, yeah. really. I mean, it yeah. shatters the entire family as it would, yeah. but it it feels earned in the film, right? I mean, it's a melodramatic ending yes. for someone, but it does feel like it's of a piece with the larger emotional aesthetic, if that makes any yes. sense. It's a big operatic death. Yes, but it's still a tremendous shock. Mm-hmm. It's a great shock, and from that moment, I mean, everything seems to happen very quickly, yeah. even though it feels like a terrible protracted sequence through the hospital right. as they realize that he's not going to make it and he dies and and then they're at the funeral and she goes off to that chapel by herself which is another sort of old film classical imagery I thought of Powell and Pressburger and Black Narcissus and things like that just the idea of or Vertigo setting a scene in a yeah. in a chapel where there's no escaping what's right. happening where right. you're locked in there with yourself. And and just the birds. Mm-hmm. The, birds the birds that are, you know, the pigeons, whatever, that are flying up in the rafters. And then Tancredi comes in to find her and puts her shoes back on again. There's a lot of that, too, in the movie. The people putting on the clothes and taking off the clothes. And, yeah. and he puts her shoes back on and... He puts his jacket on her because she looks so vulnerable and wet and cold. And she just tells him, Io amo Antonio. She just says it. Mm-hmm. And he goes to take her jacket and she thinks he's going to hit her. And he just says, You don't exist. And walks away. I mean, it's just so. Black and white yeah. and sudden, right? No discussion, right? No waffling on her part about, am I going to tell him or not? And he said, that's it. Yeah, it's the... Get out of here. If it was a musical, this would be the the greatest, the crescendo of it. It's, yeah. it's the moment where they can't, they simply have to be true to each other, or honest with each other, rather. Yeah. And it's, it annihilates the relationship. Yeah. Although, I, I was trying to figure out this time, is I guess he's letting her go? Does he know? And I don't think he is. I think it's just... A dis- it's a dismissal. It's he's, a dismissal, definitely. Yeah. And that's why she just runs back to the house where the family's still all gathered there in the living room. And they see her coming across the lawn and she just runs up the stairs and has that frantic packing moment with Ida. Mm-hmm. And that moment when... I guess Ida understands what's going on somehow. Mm. Oh, I'm sure she always and, has. Right? Yeah, and they they embrace in this like this cry at the and that's the moment when oh, your heart just explodes. I mean, for me to think of that, that's the one the thing that 
sent me over the edge. Right? <laughs> and then she's gone. She comes back down the stairs and has one moment looking at her daughter. And then she's out the door. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And we are left behind as well. Right. Yes. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Yeah. That it resists the epilogue. It resists the happy ending or even a tragic ending. It just, it's over now. This is like this Although is the end the, of the family. He, he does the tag on that very little epilogue-like oh, yes. scene over the credits of Antonio and Emma in this grotto-like cave. Yeah, right? I want to think that's a fantasy. I mean, yeah. I think that's her dream—that just finding peace with him somewhere. Yeah, but you're right; it could be. I mean, the rest of the film has been so stylized that it might as well be real. Yeah, but. I don't know. I want to wonder. I the same way I don't want a sequel to Call Me by Your Name, even though apparently right. they're planning oh, you're several. Kidding. <laughs> now there's uh, it's a series of books and they're ready to make more. Really? I think, or it's a series of scripts and they're ready to make more. But that that is apparently the plan. Wow. And I don't want it. No, I don't need it. No. Let let us not know. There's yeah. there is, you know, a, a wonderful pleasure in ambiguity and, and and not knowing things. It doesn't mean it's being cruel to the audience. It just means yeah. that this is where the story ends. And and for for Emma, this is you know, this wasn't her life. It is it isn't anymore. We saw the period that mattered with this family and now she's gone and and Eduardo is gone and there is no more family. The right. the, the people who are left are left for a reason. Their stories will continue in separate directions, but the movie is over, so yeah. The grotto image—I just—it's funny. I've discounted it in my head mm-hmm. as just being a possible fantasy. But if it's real, then they've earned it. Certainly, the two yeah. of them deserve it. I don't know. How do you feel? I—I I think, I think they've earned it. I—I uh, I kind of like to believe that it's actually true. <laughs> I know <laughs> it doesn't really matter to me if it's a fantasy. I—I I would like to think that they—that they found each other. And whatever it was going to be, it was going to be rough and ready, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, a couple facing an uncertain future is certainly dramatically valid. I yeah. can see that going there. Yeah. But I'm almost, I'm almost happy with the idea that we stay in the house and we never see her again and we don't know what became of her because that's how right. she'll be treated by the family. Right. She'll be this, oh, you know, my mom just And then there's, away. there's Ito's... Uh, Fiance, yes, who's or wife, but I guess by this point, mm-hmm. who's like about to try and tell everyone, oh, by the way, yeah. I'm pregnant, right? Yeah, well, that'll distract them. Yeah, <laughs> give them something else to be upset about or to, to focus on. Right. But it is the sense of life going on and just not stopping because the movie's over that I find very contenting. Yeah. Uh, contenting is a word. I'm, I'm making it a word. It's <laughs> the sense of a the sense that we've only been witness to a portion of the story makes it richer to me somehow than needing to know. Yes. Although now I'm mostly just channeling my own frustrations with the idea of a sequel to Call Me By <laughs> Even Suspiria ends with an extra little beat of something that is absolutely meaningless, but it's there. It's just a thing, a gesture that a character does that we've that we get nothing out of when it happens, but it's just the sense of, well, this is the this is the end point. This is what I'm doing to show you that the movie has ended. Here's a thing that happened that has no relevance, but this is where we've ended up. Um, I kind of admire that about his storytelling. Yes. Uh, even when he's willing to frustrate me, it's usually yes. for a good cause. Yes. So the um, this this kind of brings me to the the other question in the podcast, which is, you know, is and you've sort of spoken about it already. Is there something of of I am love that you have? Uh, appropriated or borrowed or stolen or incorporated into your own well work. certainly I mean it's not the same kind of f- film as what we were able to make uh, but from the point of view of it being the story about a woman uh, trying to come to her own truth it's mm-hmm. it's uh, was a, a starting point inspiration for us in our film um, because the the characters are talking about the arts and uh, a writing life, we are a lot more wordy in the process. We do sure. a lot more, you know, self-reflective um, examination of each other and, and ourselves. So it, it's a more roundabout turn of getting there. Things don't happen with quite the 
the sudden and ferocious, you know, severity that they do in I Am Love. Mm-hmm. Um, but Into Invisible Light is a film about someone trying to decide if she wants that sort of intensity. Yes. And where that'll come from yes. if she finds it. Yes. But it's not likely to come from someone else. Mm. It's something that she needs to find within herself. And I hope that that's what we're left with at the end, is that that's what she has begun anyway. Mm-hmm. She's just um, embarked on this intention to try and find this voice again, this writing voice. Did you pull anything from Swinton? Or is there anything other than, you know, a certain tilt of the head? I, don't, I didn't really catch anything, I don't but think if there's so. something else. No, I don't think so. But certainly, I mean, she is an actress who I've admired for so long. And and there were other actresses and other performances that, that we were drawing inspiration from as, you know, um, people that we were thinking about while mm. we were creating this character for me to play. Um, and Kristen Scott Thomas is one from sure. several things that she's done, uh, particularly a beautiful film called I've Loved You for So Long. That was the thing I thought of when yeah. you mentioned her just now. Yeah, yeah. and then also I was very... Um, uh, taken with a, a role that Juliette Binoche played in something called Certified Copy. Oh, yes. The which is no, probably not something that a lot of people saw, but it, it was a movie again where um, a woman talked her way through something. Yes. Right? I think she even had se- sections where she looked like she was just talking almost right into the camera, right? But she was. I, I I admire that thing of not being afraid. I mean, because I know we all know it's such a tenet in movies. It's movies. It's not theater. Don't oversay things. Don't you know have too much dialogue. Uh, show rather than say. But I like movies where people talk to each other. I like hearing people talk to each other. So I was always pushing for that in this script. Just more. Yeah dialogue more yeah more um it was a bit of a contentious issue between <laughs> Sheila and I on more than one occasion in the development of the script and the rehearsal process where where uh, she would say Jen it's too much we have to pull back you know but and in the end of course she wins because she's the director of the <laughs> editing room but you know uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with with starting from more and then being able to whittle it away. Yeah, certainly. I mean, cer- I, and certainly the story of, a, of an actor writing more lines for herself is not, this would not be the first time this has happened. Oh, but yeah, but I, uh, I wrote some fabulous scenes and lines for other people too, <laughs> so it wasn't just about that. Good, as long as you have a larger project in mind. Yeah. My thanks to Jennifer Dale, whose new film Into Invisible Light opens this Friday, February 1st in Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver. Thanks also to Suzanne Sheridan. She knows what she did. You can find Jennifer on Twitter at Jenny Ann Dale, all one word and with an E, and you can find I Am Love on Blu-ray and DVD from Mongrel Media in Canada and from Magnolia Entertainment in the U.S. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. It truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening. I'm afraid you just too darn loud.